Good morning, everybody. If you're joining us online and I haven't met you, my name is Luke, and it's my privilege to share with you a message this morning. We are in uh, final week, six talks, four weeks, God and sexuality. Remember when we announced it and it was like kind of like a nervous tremor in the room. We're going to talk about sex for like four weeks in the church. Oh, this is the last talk. We've made it uh, through this uh, series, and I've got a lot of feedback from people just saying how helpful this has been and how, how, how God has uh, done works in us. Uh, we're a very brief whistle-stop tour of this uh, series as we've moved through it. We started by looking at the story that you're living in, that every single one of us is living in a story. Your life, the way in which you live out your sexuality is because it's rooted in a story, a worldview that you believe in. We, we looked at uh, our, our worldviews. Then we, we looked at how our sexuality and our sexual practices form us as human beings, that actually we are the product of our habits and our practices, that those things form us a particular way as human beings, and we become something because of the way in which we live out our sexuality. Uh, we looked at um, singleness last week as well, uh, the, the, the high view the Bible places on singleness, and the critical role that it, it, we as the church play in one another's lives as a wider family. Um, we looked at Jesus and same-sex attraction. Um, it was like a marathon talk of about an hour and 35 minutes that uh, someone put you through. Um, and then we looked at Jesus and tra transgenderism as well. Last week, Wednesdays, Ian Krieger came and shared with us so powerfully. And uh, today we close out our series by landing with uh, looking at God and marriage in our, our journey on sexuality. Where are we going to be next week? Next week we, we have uh, Andrew Butterworth with us. Andrew uh, is a, leads a church in, uh, in Joburg called uh, God First in, uh, in Benoni in the south area, I think. My Joburg geography is not that uh, good, but it's pretty much where the rough and tumble of Joburg happens. I preached there once, and afterwards they took us to the Benoni South Poiki competition, and uh, it was serious there. Uh, it was serious, and uh, so Butterworth is a medical doctor from the UK, married a South African lady, and they lead a church in uh, Joburg. And Andrew's going to be with us next week, preaching a one-off message, and so really look forward to that. Also part of Advance, our family of churches, and so nice to be just uh, joining with our wider Advance family as well. And then we pick up the final installment of our James series as we conclude the book of James. Five messages as we look at a faith, an enduring faith, a faith that finishes strong. And so we're looking forward to that as we go. But uh, today, as I said, we're looking at God and, and, and marriage. Um, we're looking at our, our view of marriage and our sexuality series. And um, we just got load shedding now, hey? A 10, okay. Anyway, um, I just had a reminder go on my phone, um, uh, so that's what told me. Uh, where are we? We're in uh, marriage, and uh, three parts to my talk. We're going to be a, look at a vision of marriage, a vision, a Christian vision of marriage. We're going to look at practices, and then we're going to look at the importance the Holy Spirit plays in enabling us to live that way. So three parts, vision, practices, and the Holy Spirit, and how these lead to restoration and transformation in our marriages. Okay, so in the room today, there's loads of different people from loads of different walks of life. Some of us were single. Some of us are single and hoping to be married. Some of us are single and realize we may never be married, although we are hoping to be. Some of us are single and wish we were married. Some of us are married and wish we were single. <laughs> Others of us are in marriages that are really struggling. Some of us are in marriages that are rocking. It's just, some of us are divorced, and, and there's painful stuff 
To, it, it's painful to grapple with some of these things just because of the history in your life. I, we, the whole spectrum is in either in the room or watching online this morning and uh, trusting that as we, we look at God's view of marriage that we remember we're looking at this as a church, which means we're a family. Remember, the church is never less than family. Brothers and before I'm a husband, I'm a brother and sister in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, that's what I'll be part of forever. And so I want to call us as brothers and sisters, as a family, to grapple with these things. I want to remind us in our life groups, let's keep this conversation going. I realize that as we looked at six talks in four weeks, we've only had two Wednesdays or Tuesdays, whenever your life group meets, to actually unpack this because of the two sessions we've had on Wednesday. So this is going to be, I'm sure, a bit of a marathon life group coming up this week. If you are not in a life group, this is the moment to join one so you can work these things out. Um, There's some overdue conversation needed in life group, I'm sure. Let's jump into our message, though, as we look at a vision for marriage, a vision for Christian marriage. Now, when it comes to marriage, we all need a vision of what Christian marriage is. Now, it's true, all of us have got a vision, whether it be Christian or not. We've got a vision of what marriage is and what marriage isn't. And I want to start by comparing and contrasting, if you will, a secular view of marriage with a Christian view of marriage. As Christ followers, we come to the Scriptures and we see how the Bible describes to us what marriage is all about. And in the same way we do, in, uh, in two weeks' time, when our James poster is up here, and we're, we're lifting up the Bible in the book of James in the same way we did in sexuality, we lift up the Bible, and then we bring our lives as Christ followers underneath the Scriptures, and we, we seek to be aligned to what they teach. We see in, in Jesus' view on marriage that Jesus affirmed marriage, that Jesus affirmed marriage between a man and a woman, and he, he also said it's the only place for sex as well. It's not the same place that our culture starts, though, when it comes to marriage. I say, let's stop by looking at our, our kind of secular story of marriage. And I say story, but I realize we should actually say stories because there's a lot of different views at work in our world. In South Africa, it's an interesting place when it comes to marriage. You know that um, marriage in South Africa can include any combination of men and women. Polygamy is legal in South Africa. Um, there was some recent controversy, I don't know if you picked up on it, where polyandry has been, is, is unconstitutional. Polygamy is one man, many women. Polyandry is one woman and many men, which is unconstitutional, but yet polygamy is, I'm not batting for either, but um, just saying this is happening in our culture as a society is grappling with what we believe around marriage. I'd say for many of us, maybe many of us who kind of uh, would have grown up in this part of the world, marriage is about happiness, about your pursuit of happiness, kind of like a lot of things today, your pursuit of happiness. And marriage can be about entering into a contract with somebody else because you enjoy each other with a kind of view to partner together to progress through life, that together we can achieve more than I can on my own, and I need somebody else to help me to do what I want to do in life, and so I, I find someone I can marry, and hopefully I get a good deal in that marriage, and it works out for us, and I'm uh, better for it as well. People are getting married later and later in late life in South Africa. Age-wise, the average age for men getting married currently in South Africa is 37 First-time marriages, this is, by the way, um, the average age, oh, you can see how slightly older and then slightly older, 2015 was 31 for women and now is 33. And so increasingly we are getting married later and later in life as South Africans. 
We also no longer believe that sex is only for marriage as a society as well. And so there's this long gap before marriage where there's a lot of sex that is still happening outside of the context of marriage. When you put this together with South Africa's history of migrant labor, it's created a crisis of fatherlessness in South Africa. The UN report statistically that globally 75% of children live with both a father and a mother in their home. In South Africa, it's 32%. Okay, 32% of children in our country live with both parents at home. 21% live with neither parents at home. 42% live with their mom and 4% live with their dads. This is South Africa. About one-fifth of all children in South Africa do not live with their parents. This is the reality of sex outside of the covenant of marriage uh, in, in, in a culture with a different view of marriage than what we, we, what we would hold up today as the church. It's not working. It's us as a society, we're struggling with it. Well, let's quickly, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going very fast here, but, but, but let's look at a contrasting picture of marriage. We've looked at marriage a bit in our culture, and we looked at something of the effects of it as well, but what about marriage in, in the church? What about marriage uh, in the Christian sense? Remember Jesus... Jesus was very subversive in his teaching. Jesus, Jesus wasn't killed because he was a nice guy and everybody got on with him, right? Jesus said some stuff that really unsettled the powers of the day. Jesus upset the status quo and, and not least around what he taught around marriage. We've been looking over the past few weeks at this a chunk of scripture, Matthew chapter 19. We've really camped in it over now six talks really. Jesus is speaking about a, how a Christian worldview when it comes to sexuality and marriage. And uh, remember what's happening in the context here. A group of religious leaders have come to try and trick Jesus. And they've questioned him around marriage and divorce and remarriage. And Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus' answer. We've read it before in the previous weeks. We read it again now. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. A couple of things to just quickly pull out here. Have you not read, Jesus says, he created them from the beginning, male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Hold fast to his wife. Two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. What God has joined, let no man separate. This teaching that Jesus is giving is rooted in a worldview. Remember Ian was with us on Wednesday, he spoke about this. He spoke about how at the moment it feels a little bit in life, the way in which our sexuality, the sexual revolution, it's shifted so fast that it feels a little bit like we live in a world where, where there's puzzle pieces being thrown at you like this, right? And puzzle pieces like your sexual desire, your physical attraction, what you believe around your self-worth, how you believe you relate to other people, your, your view in this instance, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, Here's a, what is, what are you, what's your, where do you put the puzzle piece of divorce and remarriage? We've got all these puzzle pieces and everything's changing. And, and in a sense, what we see here is Jesus doesn't just tell him where to place this puzzle piece, but he holds up the box. 
And he says, this is a picture of what Christian sexuality looks like. And then you take the, the pieces, the individual pieces, and you align them to the box. What we see in this Matthew 19 vision of Christian marriage, this vision, this puzzle box, we see here that Jesus holds up the authority of the Bible. He says, have you not read? Holds up the authority of the Bible in the puzzle box. <coughs> So he points back and he affirms God's original design, that he made them in Genesis. God uh, is revealed as a created designer of male and female. Male and female are 100% equal, yet they are different. They are like opposite each other. Jesus affirms this. When it comes to marriage, he says, you leave your old family, and you cleave, and a new family is created. In this new family, two people become one. They become one body, soul, mind, spirit. There is a deep union and unity that happens in marriage, and it is designed that way by God. We see, too, that it is um, a covenant. Marriage is a covenant that God actually joins two together. There's this supernatural element. There's something that's more than just a legal agreement that takes place. But God actually does something between two people as he unites them in covenant. And so what we're doing in the series really as Christ followers is we're taking our lives and we're, we're bringing them under the puzzle box that Jesus holds up here. And we're trying to re, uh, recalibrate ourselves according to this puzzle box that Jesus gives us. Now, I, I just don't want you to think that standing up here, uh, even for me as a, a, a preacher, that I've got this all figured out. I, my story around sexuality is one of God's redemption and God is still redeeming. I my sexuality, I was discipled more than anything by growing up in an all-boys school around sexuality. Which means that uh, I grew up, I didn't talk much about sexuality with my parents. When I was about nine or ten years old, there was this mysterious book that appeared in the lounge. Where do I come from? With drawings, right? And this book would kind of move around, it would all by itself. Uh, it would like suddenly appear in this prominent place on the coffee table, right? And then it would be like right on the side of the couch where I always sat. It would just like miraculously appear there. Then other people would come visit our house. The book would just like, disappear. It was like the lounge was like the Bermuda Triangle of this mysterious book that would kind of just move around. Uh, that I would like, was, I don't know, I guess my mom wanted me to read it or something. And I, I pretty much learned about sex and sexuality with my mates in an all-boys school. Which means I was pretty much discipled to be a pervert. I mean, just to be real honest. In the absence of any honest, genuine help and instruction around sexuality, we were a group of, I mean, I was caught by my deputy headmaster. Ben, I don't think you even know this. I was caught at 12 years old in grade 6 by my deputy headmaster bringing porn pictures to school. We didn't have phones in those days. I had stuck it to the back of a piece of paper and folded it up and we were running exams and I had hidden it in my desk and they found it because they were looking for notes to cheat on. And that's what they found. It was much worse. And then I came to Christ and began to submit every part of my life to him. 
and ask him to reform me. I began reading the Bible as a teenager. I began reading the Bible. I read the Bible through in a year when I was 17. I began just reading the Bible. Trying to, I knew I was broken. I knew I was messed up. Sexuality was one of the worst areas I was so messed up. But I was angry and I had just so much to learn. And I remember just bringing my time and my money, my enjoyment of alcohol and parties and all of these different facets to my life to Christ to say, Jesus, teach me what it means to be like you, to live in your ways. And, and probably when it comes to sexuality, I had the, there was the biggest gap. I had the longest way to go. Uh, we've just moved house now and in the process of unpacking boxes, Lauren and the kids on, what is it, Friday night discovered our wedding video, hey? And uh, I was, I, I think I was building a bed or something, I was upstairs and, um, and uh, they were watching our wedding video. And this is one part of our wedding ceremony where it's a, it, it, we were very young, Lauren was very beautiful, she still is very beautiful. <laughs> and uh, it's, there we are in the front. And it's worship. It's worship. We, we started, we, in our wedding, we worship Jesus. We sang songs. It doesn't happen much in wedding ceremonies today. Uh, we worship. We, uh, and, and while we worship, my kids laughed at me because I was ugly crying in the front of the church. I mean, Lauren's like, worship you, Jesus. Looks good, whatever. I was just ugly crying, sobbing. And, and I know exactly why. Because I was so sexually messed up when I came to Christ. And years later, I stood at the front of a church to, to give myself to one woman for the rest of my life, and it was a good thing. She was not getting a raw deal. I knew in my heart the work that God had done to bring me to that place. And I was just so grateful for what God had done in me. We need a Christian, all that to say. Guys, we all of us are bringing our lives under the truth, jacked up and messed up, but yet God is realigning us and transforming us. And we need this when it comes to marriage. Jesus' vision of marriage and Christian marriage is affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament as well. If, if, if we're going we're to see where Paul echoes Jesus' words in the book of Ephesians. We're going to read now from Ephesians chapter 5, and we, we look at what Paul says uh, in this vision of Christian marriage, if you will. See how he echoes Jesus. Jesus' words, which are echoing Genesis as well. Ephesians 5 verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You've heard this before. This, is a, this mystery is profound. And all the married people go, Amen. It's true. It is mystic, mysterious at times. What I'm saying refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is doing is Paul is echoing Genesis. He's echoing Jesus. But, but he noticed that he develops this thing further and he gives us a vision for marriage that is expanded. He said it's a profound mystery, but it refers to Christ and the church. That, that, that this vision of Christian marriage is expanded beyond two people to declare to a watching world the gospel and Christ's love for the church. That this union between Lauren and I is not just about Lauren and I. That somehow through our union we would display to a world the, the love that Jesus has for his church. Two like each other in that we're both human beings but opposite each other in that one's female and one's male people selflessly loving each other, serving each other and submitting to one another for the good of the other displays 
the love that Jesus has for his church, that this union is about that love Jesus has for the church. It's a profound mystery. In a second, we're going to unpack the rest of what Paul says. I want to be clear on the front end, though. I'm speaking to us as a church as we learn to bring our lives under Christ. I'm not trying to police the world. I'm, uh, I, I want to show us Jesus' vision of marriage, how beautiful it is, and then call us as believers to live this up. But we're not policing society here. Tim Keller says this. He wrote a book on marriage that I highly recommend called The Meaning of Marriage. This is also a devotional that he's written, which comes highly recommended by some friends of mine, um, although I haven't yet read this. Um, the Meaning of Marriage, I have read it. It is extraordinary, um, and I'd really recommend you read it as a kind of vision for Christian marriage. This is what Keller says. He says, there are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises that the Bible doesn't address and regulate. And so we are free to invent them and operate them in line with general principles for human life that the Bible gives us. But marriage is different. As the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Marriage did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. At the climax of Genesis, the Genesis account of creation, we see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with a wedding, the wedding of Adam and Eve, and it ends with a book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It is certainly also a human institution, and it reflects the character of a particular human culture in which it's embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action. And therefore, what the Bible has to say about God's design for marriage is crucial. Probably the best way to understand the distinction between a Christian marriage and a marriage in secular culture is the understanding of the difference between the words contract and covenant. Contract and covenant. We live in a society that mostly views marriage through the lens of contract. Contract is, I'll do this and you agree to do that. And as long as I keep doing what I've agreed to do in this contract and you keep doing what you've agreed to do in this contract, we'll kind of be okay. But, but if at some point in this relationship uh, I start to stop fulfilling my side of the contract, then because I'm in a sense in breach of this contract, then you're entitled to not fulfill your side of the contract as well. And, and if this goes on for long enough... Because kind of um, I'm not getting any older, and uh, you know I'm not getting any younger. Sorry, I am only getting older. If you stop doing what you committed to do for long enough, then I'm entitled to be to look elsewhere to have my needs fulfilled. It's it's contractual language. If I'm if you're not upholding your side of the deal, then you're in breach, and so therefore I should be able to find what I'm looking for elsewhere. Where Christian marriage is, is different, it's a covenant. It's, it's the, difference, the difference between a functional partnership in some ways versus a deep union in which marriage was intended to be. The, chief, the late chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, said this, speaking generally of relationships in life, but he said this, Economics and politics are arenas of mediated, principled competition for money or power, where individuals struggle to survive and to beat others. You're trying to get more than the other guy because you need to. But social goods like knowledge, trust, learning, friendship, love, inherently work differently. The more I share, the more I have. 
Social goods don't operate by the logic of scarcity and zero-sum gains. Did I say games or gains? Gains. In my notes it says games. So where those who are involved... uh, We should promote cooperation rather than competition. That cooperation can take two forms, a contract or a covenant. In a contract, two parties, each focused on personal interest, what do I get out of this, come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for a limited time. In a covenant, two people come together with a moral commitment to stay together in good and bad times, for the greater good, and by doing so, are transformed. Contracts are about interest. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit. Covenants transform. A contract is, I'm in this because of what I'm going to get through this, and when I stop getting, then it can fall apart. A covenant says, I'm in this to give. It's at a, not at an interest level, it's at an identity. This is who I am level. It's a little bit like how we parent our children. Your baby comes into this world that offers you very, very little in terms of give back, right? <laughs> Yet, there you are, three in the morning, it's vomiting, it's pooping, it's messing, it's everything. And what do you do? You don't go, oh, I'm not getting anything. <sighs> it's one way, I'm out. No, you love and you carry and you cover because it's a covenant. And you do. And over time, you, as a, if you're anything like me, selfish person, are transformed through the relationship which you've covenanted into. We see this. We love this in our culture. The number one sung marriage song by the author, poet, prophet, Edward Christopher Sheeran. Perhaps you've heard of him. <laughs> when your legs don't work like, like they used to before, and you can't sweep, and I can't sweep you off your feet, your feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I'll be loving you till we're seventy. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at twenty-three. It's a big gap, though. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways. Maybe just the touch of a hand. Oh, me, I fall in love with you every single day till I'm 70, you know? Beautiful. It's covenant. Okay. But how? We've seen the what. We've seen the why. But how do we actually do this? And it's into this place, Christian marriage, we need certain practices to help us. We've got a vision of the what, we've got a vision of the why, but how do we actually do this? And so I want to look at some Christian practices. Now Paul takes us deep in now in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he says. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Please try continue listening. 
Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, he might be, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I'm so aware that as I read that scripture, our ears ring today. The hairs on the back of our neck stand up when I read words like submission. Even words like husbands and wives make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. But I want to start by saying that the same things that shock you and I today as we read that are not the same things that shocked the early church when they first heard those words. In fact, we need to, in order to understand what this means for us today, we need to go back and understand what it meant to them then in order to unpack what this means to us now in South Penn. What stands out to you today as you heard that is definitely not the same thing that stood out to them. Paul wrote these words to the church that met in Ephesus. Uh, it was a place. At the heart of Ephesus was this great big statue of Artemis, this goddess, and you would worship this goddess by um, you know, uh, having sex with a temple prostitute, as one did in those times. It was a city that was centered around pleasure, around hard work, and around playing hard as well. And the first century, like actually a lot of history, was a terrible time to be a woman. The view of women at that time was incredibly low. In Greco-Roman society, baby girls were often left outside to die of exposure because people desired sons more. Men typically got married to continue their own family lineage in general, men married women who were much younger than themselves. Wives were expected to be faithful to their husbands, but men were allowed to run amok. They could sleep with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and history tells us that they did. Men did as they pleased, and women kind of just had to put up with it. Aristotle wrote it into the household codes. That was the context in which this was written to. Now, I want you to imagine Paul standing up in first century BC, first century, the first century, sorry, and reading this. Can you see how radical these words were? The men would have choked on their soup to submit to one another. What are you talking about? Surely wives must submit to men, but not men to their wives. Submit to one another. This was shocking. And it was a, a countercultural vision of marriage. Yes, it's still startling today, but it was far more startling back then. It was a way of doing marriage that was fueled by two things. Because lives were yielded to Christ. Every Christ follower had come under Jesus and was reformatting and realigning their lives according to His ways and purposes. And number two, it was because they were filled with the Spirit. They were living lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. These are the mega themes of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. The book of Ephesians speaks of how the gospel shapes human lives. Paul writes six chapters to the church in Ephesus around what 
what it is that the gospel is and how the gospel shapes our lives. It's the operating, of, of, the operating system of heaven that invades the lives of ordinary Christ followers and transforms how they do life. And so marriages are transformed into covenant relationships where two people are called to lay down their lives in denying themselves in favor of serving another. We see wives laying down their wants and desires in favor of their husbands. And we see husbands laying down their lives in favor of the needs and betterment of their wives. Covenant love means, shocking word coming here, spoiler alert, self-denial. It's sacrificial. It means I put the other person above myself. I submit myself to what is better for the other person in this marriage. It's it's only possible through the Spirit's power. Husbands are to love their wives, Paul says, as their own body. Remember the household codes written that day? Women stayed faithful. Men did as they pleased. Here, husbands are to love their wives as their own body. To keep my body pure for her as I would want her to keep her body pure for me. This was revolutionary in that culture. Can you imagine how this went down in that day? Two dudes after a long day of work in Greco-Roman society. Maybe he's a carpenter or he's a blacksmith and his mate says to him come let's go grab a couple of beers at the pub after work and then we'll go and sample the new temple prostitutes i heard there's a new batch that's come in it's going to be whatever you know and then the dude just says to himself says to his mate i mean no no no, i'm gonna go home early thanks my wife has been grafting all day she's still nursing the baby it's just it's exhausting at home right now and i just i'm no i'm gonna head home and i'm gonna help out there he's <laughs> His mate says, what are you talking about, man? But okay, at least come later to the prostitutes with me. And he goes, no, you know, things have been going so well at home. I mean, my wife, she's just so lovely. She, she just gets me. She loves me in a way like no one's ever loved me. This marriage is just amazing. I'm just getting swept up in love for her. And, and I just want to serve her as best as I can. And the poor dude on the other side is falling over backwards because he's never even heard of something like this. He does not even have a Greco-Roman category for this kind of relationship. That's what Paul is calling to. Now, it is true that these verses, isolated, pulled out of context, can be used to manipulate and control people in harmful ways. And I am not for one second defending abuse in any way. In fact, if there is, if there is abuse happening in your marriage, please come and talk to us as elders because we want to work this out. There may even be legal ramifications that we need to pursue in seeing you free from that. That thing. That's not what this passage is saying. Nor does this passage say that all women must submit to all men. I want to be absolutely clear. That is not what is being said in this passage here. This is speaking about a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. There is mutual submission out of reverence to Christ. Wives denying themselves, submitting to husbands who are daily dying to, sub, 
dying in submission to themselves as well here in order to love their wives too. And it is a picture of the gospel. Ladies, if ever your wife says to you, submit. Sorry, sorry, sorry. If ever your husband says to you, wife, submit. You know what you say to him? You say, husband, die. That's what the passage says. Then you're getting to the essence of this kind of self-denial. Die to yourself. This is... It, I just, it's not contract. It's not, well, I'm getting this, and so uh, these, these are my needs, and I'll put my needs here, and then you get here, and we, co- we, we collaborate to get my needs met. And this, is, this is, I lay down my life in order to beautify and love and, and see you become more like Christ. This is selfless. To the men, husbands, you are the only legitimate source of romance in your wife's life. You are the only legitimate source of romance in your wife's life. Is your wife feeling loved? Is your wife feeling appreciated? Is your wife feeling, feeling valued and cherished and sacrificed for? When she looks at your calendar, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, after Jesus, is she number one, even above your kids? Men, deny yourselves. We live in a modern culture that has trashed masculinity and maleness. Really, I get it in reaction to genuine injustices in our society, but Really, we have trashed and hated on men. And, and yet at the same time, we've put out this hedonistic message. Life is all about pursuing pleasure and your own happiness. And in, the, in that kind of gray space, more and more men are remaining selfish little boys who grew up, grow up living selfish little lives, pursuing sports goals and playing computer games to whatever and whatever boys nights all the time there's a word used at the moment i've heard it's called man ages if you take the word man and you substitute it for teen and you get teenager it's man ages these are these are teenagers trapped in the body of grown men if jesus loved the church like a man ager we'd all be finished to be a husband is to embrace your God-given maleness, to lay down your life for the bettering of your wife. Forget about selfish exploits and be famous in your family and be famous in your home. To the woman, ladies, do you respect your husbands? Paul says in there, to respect your husband. I, want to, I don't know why, I don't properly understand it, I don't pretend to, but, but for men, we, we often experience love through respect. I know it's weird, I know. Are you your husband's biggest fan? Does your husband feel a sense of appreciation? Can I say, can I say that if you're using disrespect as a means to get to your husband, it just doesn't work. Is this, is, this, is this what you call a date night? Really? Is that, is that the best you can do? It doesn't, it doesn't work disrespecting to get what we want. We've got to work on our marriages, guys. So this is where we, like the end of the message, I pull all different threads together. And it's a bit random and scattered. We have to work on our marriages. We live in a culture where many believe the lie that if it's real love, it should just happen naturally. I shouldn't, it shouldn't feel like work. It's such rubbish. Do you remember, do you remember um, Cherith and Louie? Cherith and Louie, you were in our church before. They moved to Sedgefield. They went off uh, work-wise. They were there. Cherith used to play uh, violin in church. Remember? Um, 
when Cherith played violin, it was the most natural looking thing. I mean, it looked nothing probably like how it looks when I'm playing violin. It was the most natural looking thing. I remember when she was training and practicing for an exam where she would become the highest qualified violinist in South Africa. And uh, Lauren and I were invited to a concert in their home in Nurtuk. It was the pre-exam concert in her home where she played her entire exam recital for a few people. It was the most, I've, I'm like totally uncultured. I just, I, those things are often wasted on me. I was in awe of that day. Do you know that as much as it looked natural when she played, she would practice for four hours every single day. It was work that made it natural. This kind of lazy culture. Well, you know, if you, if you have to put effort in, it's just not genuine then. <laughs> I mean, it's laughable. It's not authentic if you have to work at it. Of course it's authentic. It's what we do. It's love, man. Anyway, some practical tips. Why not reverse engineer your marriage? I know it sounds super romantic. Uh, reverse engineer your marriage. What does that mean? It, asks, it means as a couple, or your life, we ask, we ask for Lauren and I, uh, ben, ben, in five years' time, we'll finish high school. Jack will be finishing primary school. We sit down as a couple and we ask ourselves, where do we want to be in five years' time? What do we want our life to look like in five years' time? What, what, what's, what, what, where do we want to see our kids? What space are our kids in? Where do we want to be living? Who are our friends? What, what kind of church do we want to be in, et cetera, et cetera? What kind of community? What, do we want to, what does our life look like then? And then you start to work backwards and you go, okay, given that reality, how, what habits, what practices, how do we cultivate that now to make sure that we're heading that way and heading towards it then. You can't control the future, but you can do your best. Reverse engineer your marriage. Here's a tool around marriage and sex. Four questions to ask yourself. Revealing questions. Now, here's the thing. Be mature in how you ask and answer these questions amongst each other. There is opportunity to be hurt in these processes and to respond. I want to call you to respond in a loving way to one another. Ask some revealing questions. What's wrong in our marriage? What do we need to cease? What do we need to cease? Silly example, I heard of a couple uh, who were in a habit of fighting, and when they fought, they would threaten divorce. And I realized, like, hang on, actually, we can, we can, we can Barney through some stuff, but actually that, that, that thing, that, that just needs to be taken out. We don't threaten divorce or threaten to have an affair, or, you know, I've, if I won't find it here, I'll find it somewhere else. These are, these are silly little things that creep into a marriage, and yet they can be destructive. What, what's wrong? What do we want to cease? Then, then this is a very important question that we very seldom actually ask ourselves in life. What is good? What do we want to celebrate in our marriage? Laura and I sometimes do this thing where we look through our photographs, hey? And we just look through the photographs of the memories and the things that we've done, where we celebrate the wins in life. It's, it doesn't happen naturally. It should. But sit down as a couple and celebrate the wins then ask yourself, what are we confused? Where, where, do we, where do we need to find each other? Where are we missing each other here? What do we need to clarify together in our marriage? And lastly, what's missing? When you reverse engineer and you look, what's missing here? What do we need to, to see? And, and just intervene. Get involved. Do. Rigby Wallace, our very own Rigby Wallace said this. How are we doing time-wise? Rigby Wallace says, I've never seen a marriage fail. And then you kind of squirm a little bit and you wonder and you want to correct him and then he catches you all the time. He says, I've seen people fail marriage, but I've never seen marriage fail people. 
I've seen people fail marriage. We've got to work at this. I'm going to bring my best to this. I'm going to keep working at this thing. Philip Yancey says, Marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odors, unruly hair, who menstruate and experience the occasional impotence who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to our children's needs than to our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. So do our partners. (laughs) Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, sacrificial love. Love. It's radically different than our world. I'm talking about a marriage where I am learning to deny myself in order to see Lauren flourish in society. Men and women submitting my desires. Deny all these terrible words in order to see another human being flourish. And that space of grace flowing is what God calls us to. Now, how do you do this? Remember Paul's words in verse 18. We must land now. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. We must land here by saying that Jesus is not just aloof, giving us this blueprint like an owner's manual, that you've now got to figure out how to do this. But He actually fills us with His Holy Spirit who dwells within us as Christ followers. And then He works in us, empowering us, enabling us in supernatural things, in supernatural ways. This is the Christian faith. It's supernatural. The Spirit of God within you, empowering you to do what you couldn't naturally just do in and of yourself. We are a people in society. Yes, the bar is that high. But so too is the empowering through the Spirit. We are a Spirit-filled people who rely on God for, at times, courage, discipline, grace, to hold back our tongues, to extend forgiveness, to deny ourselves, and to to lift up another. God is a living, active, present source to empower you and to help you. Christian view of marriage is covenant. It is denying of self to, to, to... elevate another human being to see them flourish and it is done because you've yielded your life to Christ and because you're empowered by the Spirit and as we do that there is no relationship in the world that comes close as we mirror and as we demonstrate to a watching world Christ's love for the church that's what this is all about can I pray for us let's stand together yeah invite even if the band would just come tinkle for us as I pray. God, as we started this message, we kind of just started by saying we realized there's a whole bunch of people in different places of singleness and marriage and divorce in this room. And I realized we're all in a kind of different space. But Lord, we ask that you would minister to us through these words. I want to ask, Lord Jesus, first and foremost for the marriages in this community, Jesus.
Some, some are just in desperate need of saving. Others are kind of really flying. And then there's a whole spectrum in between. Jesus, I pray that you would grab our hearts with a vision of marriage, with a vision of selfless love. I pray for spouses trapped perhaps in loveless marriages. I pray for wisdom, Lord Jesus. I pray that Jesus, you as a source would be discovered by every spouse regardless of their marriage circumstances as a means of limitless grace to both minister to us as individuals and then splash on our spouses in reply, Jesus. I pray you would meet each of us where we're at and that we would find in you that which we need to live the lives you've called us to live, Jesus. I pray for marriages that need intervention. Now, Jesus, would you move towards? Would you break open? And would you cause healing to flow, Jesus? I pray for people in this church today who perhaps you are still limping with a wound from maybe one of your own previous marriages, maybe a parent's divorce. And that's impacting your life still today. My parents were divorced when I was five and then again another one when I was 12. I know what that's like. I pray that you would find in Christ healing and restoration. That you would be shaped more by the gospel than by a history of divorce. I pray that your marriage that you're currently in or will future, in the future be in will be shaped more by the gospel than by our culture's view of marriage, even our past experiences of marriage. Jesus, we want to be a people who do all of life and all of relationship in the shape and the way of the gospel. In a world that elevates self-fulfillment, Jesus, as we deny ourselves to love another and celebrate another, will you help us, Christ? to love like you, to serve like you, Jesus. As we sing this song, I think it's a gap maybe for some of us just to pray some personal prayers where you're at in your marriage and your space, to just, to just come back and realign our life to Him.